Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Not About Wrestling. I'm your host, Chris Lominati, and my guest today is former ECW announcer, commentator, manager, and the quintessential stud muffin, Mr. Joel Gertner. ECW has a really special place in my heart. Uh, my friends and I were absolute marks for the company. Uh, I've seen ECW shows at the Arena in Philadelphia, the Trenton CYO in Trenton, New Jersey. At a, I saw an outdoor show on a baseball field where I actually played baseball as a kid. And I even stood in the freezing rain outside the Asbury Park Convention Center to watch Living Dangerously 99 and be there firsthand when Bam Bam and Taz put a goddamn hole in the ring. You know, as a, as a rabid ECW fan, I don't remember the company without Joel Gertner. He joined ECW in 1995 at the age of 20 to work as a part-time ring announcer and the official timekeeper. Eventually, Gertner transitioned to being the heel announcer and he bounced around from performer to performer until finally hooking up with the Dudley Boys. The Dudley Boys eventually became the most dominant tag team in ECW and Gertner's ring introductions and limericks got filthier and filthier with every passing show. Oh, Lady Gaga advocates celibacy. What an absolute disgrace. If she won't let me stuff her muff, then I'll just poke her face. Gertner was there for the, the highs and lows of the hardcore revolution, and he saw it all firsthand. He was the color commentator when the company signed their TNN television deal, and he was also one of the last employees left when the company folded in 2001. These days, Gertner works as a ring announcer for various different companies and hosts more than a few podcasts. In this interview, Joel and I discuss a bunch of different things. Uh, we talk about his, his early addiction to TV game shows. He actually wanted to be a TV game show host when he was a kid why he dropped out of Cornell University to join ECW, being an absolute heat magnet on the mic, where he came up with his ideas for the filthy limericks, and he tells an amazing story about the night that he actually forgot to put on his signature neck brace and what happened right in the middle of the ring when it was pointed out to him. So, ladies and gentlemen, entering the podcast, hailing from Brooklyn, New York, this is Joel Gertner. And we're back, everybody, and I am here with, and Joel, I gotta do it, I gotta do it, I'm sure everyone does it to you. Well, well, well. Does everyone do that? Very good. Well played. Well, does well, well played. Does everyone do that? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, like, I'm going to pretend. God bless. I mean, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So obviously we're here with Joel Gertner. Uh, how many times a day do you get that? Um, in person, not so many. Uh, online, social media, a lot. A lot. Okay. Between Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, well, well, well is pretty, uh, it's pretty well, um, it's pretty well assigned to me. Uh, to the point where Pat McAfee 
had kind of been starting out um, a lot of his promos with it a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And people were like asking me if there was heat or asking me how I felt about it, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I'll do it too. Like every once in a while on Raw or SmackDown, somebody will just randomly start out their promo with well, well, well. Mm-hmm. And I'll jump on Twitter and I'll be like, well, 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 indeed. <laughs> <at whoever." laughs> well, I, I mean, the the uh, the trend now is WWE uh, tends to trademark everything. So do you want to jump on the trademark and get a well, well, well? Oh, um. <laughs> Gosh, I guess informally it's mine. Maybe I should. I don't know. I'll, I'll look into it. Um, who knows, man? I've been using it so long. Like I say, you know, if anybody else uses it, thankfully it's kind of looked at as a, as an homage and they're kind of borrowing it. Mm-hmm. But maybe, I don't know, maybe I'll throw it in like an envelope, mail it to myself, common law, <laughs> copyrighted. There you go. Or just send yourself like an ECW tape or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> and don't open it. Uh, before we jump on the call, uh, and I do it too, so everybody gets on Zoom calls these days, and the first thing you do is you adjust yourself, and you kind of like make sure you you fixed your hair. My hat, I can I've not been able to get my hat straight. In I've done uh, fifteen of these. I've done twenty five of another podcast. I don't know what straightens my hat, but I'm going to figure it out eventually because I always look like a, a Dominican baseball player. <laughs> who just stepped on the mound and he's purposely <laughs> moving his hat. You gotta hat. get a hat straightener, man. I'm yeah. sure Amazon, if Amazon doesn't have them, I'm sure Fish does or Guilt yeah. or somebody, Farfetch or something. Um, yeah, man, I have right over, not even in the center, like cool, like Razor Ramon or Superman, mm-hmm. but like right off here, um, mm-hmm. I had like a little S curl and I was like, no, no, that's not even the right place. That's not going to do. And I kind mm-hmm. of aestheticized myself. Well, the fascinating thing about that. So uh, on the, on the uh, website, I didn't write about it, but one of my coworkers did. The number of Zoom calls and face-to-face things like this that people are doing now, uh, an uptick in plastic surgery because people don't like the way they look on Zoom calls. Wow. Which I find insane because I don't think the camera, like, and you know this because you spent half of your life in front of a camera, what you see on the camera isn't really what people are seeing in real life. So you're yeah. basing it on, you know, good. Sure. Like I'm 153 pounds, you know, like you say, and it's, and that's not a function. It's not so much about that. I've spent half my life or more than half my life on camera. It's a function of the camera adds 15 pounds. And as you know, if it's a pay-per-view, you've got four cameras on you and a crane, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> you know what I mean? Not to say that I you know, look svelte as I am svelte as I'm not. However, depending on your metric, you don't get a body like this by accident. Of course, you know, standing waiting for the bus, you don't become like this. But um, yeah, man, you know, I'm, I'm 153 pounds, twisted steel sex appeal, and uh, you know, and 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 the girls wouldn't have anything less. And because they don't want anything less, they get a whole lot more. Were you born the quintessential stud muffin, or did you grow into that? Um, I was born Joel Gertner. Um, <laughs> that's probably I, I, I was born. Um, very early before wrestling, I wanted to be a game show host. Oh, um, was I born the quintessential stud muffin? Um, starting from age 16 and until 20, uh, I was Joey Jaguar on the indie circuit. Okay. Uh, and he was kind of stud muffin, but he was also kind of wealthy, snot nosed, silver spoon punk he was kind of an amalgamation of everything else good that was out there at the time mm-hmm. like cornet and paulie and and that kind of thing um 
was I born the stud muffin? Maybe there, there might've been some innate stud muffin tendencies from jump. Mm. Um, but I have certainly uh, filled out into more of a grander um, version, more of a kind of luxe version of stud muffin <laughs> as the years have gone by. Let's go back to the game show thing. How did that, as a kid, you wanted to be a game show host? Yeah, I discovered game shows before I discovered wrestling. I probably discovered game shows when I was four or five versus finding wrestling at eight or nine. Mm. Uh, so there was definitely probably, call it a four-year period uh, in the early 80s, I guess, where uh, just infatuated with game mm. shows, just loved them, um, had memorized, knew the host of every game show that was on the air. Uh, and even going back into the past, into the 70s and whatnot, to the point where uh, it, it was a way that, you know, I could get engaged into conversation with adults. You know, grown adults would be talking to this four or five-year-old kid, six-year-old kid, and uh, I'd talk game shows with them, ask them about TV from days gone by, and and tell them, hey, I know the host of every game show, try me, and, and they would. So, yeah, just, just loved it, loved it. Um, so yeah, 40 years of loving game shows and still do. And uh, before finding wrestling, I thought that was my calling. I thought nothing would be better than to be a game show host. Which were your favorites? Gosh, I liked Pitfall. Okay. I liked um, anything with Trebek, really. I mean, I liked Battle Stars and High Rollers too. But I liked Pitfall, uh, Card Sharks, uh, Las Vegas Gambit, um, Press Your Luck, the original. Mm. Um, gosh, there were so many great ones in the 80s. Mm. Uh, if you could envision any of those game show hosts maybe making the transition to wrestling, who do you think could have? Trebek could have cut a fierce promo and did. Mm. Um, there's urban legend that on the, uh, on the last episode of um, High Rollers that he was a bit inebriated and he kind of went in and went after uh, some of the contestants after they were doing their little bio at the beginning of the show. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. I know Trebek could hold his own. Um, Jim Perry had a good look. I don't know. Jim Perry would have probably been a guy that got um, a little bit of a run as a baby face and maybe also a heel. Mm -hmm. But I think he could have done real well with it. Um, I think Chuck Woolery uh, could get some heat. Chuck Woolery could get heat, absolutely, <laughs> and in real life may actually have because he was the original host of Wheel of Fortune mm. and got replaced. Uh, Chuck Woolery for sure. Um, Regis. Mm. Uh, Bob Eubanks is a big wrestling fan to the point where he was actually a local promoter at one point in Arizona for at least one house show for World Championship Wrestling. Wow. Um, yeah, ton of guys. Ton of guys could probably do real well with it. Yeah, I feel like uh, they they all have that. Maybe not announcer, but maybe manager appeal. You know, for the guys that couldn't talk. So yeah, agreed. Yeah. How did you go from the transition of loving video, uh, loving um, game shows to loving wrestling? I found it. I saw it for the first time, and it was like nothing else. I love television. It mm -hmm. was like nothing else that was on television it was a human cartoon it I, I loved even when i was young i loved dialogue i loved just crazy talk just listening to stuff that you didn't hear on the street and uh and you got that from guys like roddy piper and jesse ventura uh and all of the managers the heel managers of the day freddie blassie and um so i just 
I just I gravitated towards it. I loved it for the same reason that a few years later I would love the Morton Downey Jr. show. It was just kind of for the shock value and just again for the you're not going to find this anywhere else on television. Plus, you know, I love the in-ring stuff. I love the actual between the ropes wrestling. But in addition to the crazy talk, I love the crazy characters. Mm-hmm. I loved the the human cartoons, the freak shows. I loved uh, Georgie Animal Steel, uh, Missing Link, Kamala. Mm-hmm. Guys like that drew me to wrestling because, again, you're not seeing guys like that on Dukes of Hazard, Dallas, Dynasty, whatever. Right. Were you a WCW guy, WWF guy? Which... Um, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Mm. So geographically and chronologically, um, based on my first exposure, I'm probably always going to be a homer for the WWF of the 80s. Um, but once I got cable, uh, UHF and cable, um, in the later in the 80s, kind of the mid to late 80s and late 80s, um, became a big fan of the NWA mm-hmm. uh, and eventually... I uh, loved a lot of the stuff that WCW was doing, even though uh, in many respects, some of the best stuff that they were doing was stuff that they were doing on a grander level that we were actually doing and that they kind of, for lack of a better term, borrowed from uh, ECW. But um, like the Lucha and, and some of the other um, hardcore, whatever. But um, yeah, loved uh, WCW was great. Uh, NWA with the Four Horsemen and, and the Road Warriors and all that was amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're going to get into the influence of ECW a little bit later on. Um, but the one thing I wanted to touch on uh, is with, so when you were a kid, uh, I grew up in Jersey. We're not too far away from each other uh, geographically. Uh, I'm going to assume that you also had, I had exposure to like so many different federations around here. Like I had WWE, WCW, NWA. I used to get uh, AWA on ESPN. I would occasionally get world-class. Like I feel like that helps as a wrestling fan, because you could see all the different things and you weren't exposed to just one type of show. Yeah, we, I feel like rural and suburban got cable first. Mm-hmm. So on our block in Brooklyn, we didn't get cable and the hot boxes that came alongside cable. Mm-hmm. We didn't get that until 89, probably mm-hmm. second half of 89. Mm-hmm. So all of the territories that I was watching in more like 87, 88, all of that was coming, I believe, from Jersey, if we're mm-hmm. getting technical about it, on a station called U68, I think uh, I a UHF that, yeah. station, Channel 68, that all day was essentially a version of MTV. Mm-hmm. They showed music videos all day, mm-hmm. with the exception of Monday through Friday, 6 p.m. for an hour. 6 p.m. for an hour, Monday through Friday, different day of the week. Every day of the week, they showed a different territory. That's amazing. Uh, I think WCW was on twice during the week. They showed pro and they showed worldwide. But aside from that, they were showing UWF, uh, Bill Watts's. Mm-hmm. They were showing uh, world class. Mm-hmm. And they were showing, I want to say, one day a week was California Championship, which wow. was probably the most indie out of the five. Um and yeah, I got exposure to those territories that way. I was already a tape, tra- well, by 87, I wasn't actively trading tapes, but by 89, I'm a tape trader and I'm seeing stuff into the past and all different territories. Mm-hmm. But U68, before being a tape trader and before getting cable, was my first TV exposure to anything other than WWF. I, I would buy the magazines, 
So I would see guys and see territories um, prior to getting U68. Uh, once they started doing wrestling, that w- it was all over. I mean, I couldn't, you know, other kids were out playing between six and seven because it was either before dinner or right after dinner. It was after school. And that was like high time to go out and play ball. And for me, Monday through Friday, six to seven, I was just glued to the TV. Did you have any like wrestling friends as a kid? I did. I did. Some of my friends liked wrestling. I had wrestling paper, uh, like uh, pen pal types, mm-hmm. uh, wrestling. Um, gosh, just just fans that like other people that would call into radio shows like I did. And there was kind of, you know, there was newsletters and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, between just, you know, a kid or two on my block, a kid or two in school, and then, you know, a few people just through trying to make connections within the wrestling world. Uh, yeah, as a, even as a kid, I probably had five or 10 wrestling friends. Do you remember your first live event? Yes. What was it? Yes. January of 86 okay. at the Garden. Oh, what'd you say? It was the two-year anniversary of Hogan having the title. Okay. Uh, I don't think they necessarily build it as such, but it was. Okay. Um, and it was, I believe, in the two years since he had beaten Iron Sheik, it was the first time he lost a match at the Garden defending the title wow. because he lost by countout wow. to Macho Man Randy Savage. Wow. That's a, that's a great uh, main event right there. Yep. I saw... Yeah. Good. No, just that match is um, in WWE lore uh, in in their canon. They just uh, uh, they they kind of love to feature it in different video stuff that they do. And I think uh, one of the volumes of Best of the WWF has it on there, and uh, maybe one of their Savage compilations. And maybe they probably did Hulkamania out to like Hulkamania five or six. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the Hulkamanias probably has it on there too. My earliest, well, the first show I ever went to uh, was. On top was Hogan and Orndorff. It was right after Orndorff turned. And I feel like I feel like Hogan got the win, but by disqualification, like something happened. And I went with my grandfather and he was screaming his face. What off. venue? <laughs> At the spectrum. Oh, are you yeah. are you south in Jersey? So I'm centrally located. I'm kind of oh, like okay. the, the, the best. Well, okay. So central doesn't exist to some people in New Jersey. <laughs> like it doesn't. So uh, to North Jersey people, I'm South Jersey and to South Jersey people, I'm North Jersey, but there is a where central you, so part of New you, Jersey. Are you anywhere near like Middletown or? I'm just outside of Princeton. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to, for me, uh, New York is a, an hour and 15 hour and 20 Philly yeah. is 45, 45 minutes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I would go to the Spectrum for a lot of events. I, I did see stuff at like, um, I saw stuff at the Garden. I saw, uh, I think, one Nassau Coliseum show. But Spectrum was mostly, because back then they used to do, um, I don't know if you're familiar, the cable channel Prism. Yep. And they used to broadcast the, the cards on Prism. So I actually ended up watching the show live. And then like two weeks later, watching it on Prism. And uh, for some reason, enjoying it much more on cable because we were so high in the nosebleeds that like, you know, but I remember my grandfather literally screaming his face off about stuff. Yeah. You know, what's crazy is that there were, there were other RSNs too. There was like MSG and there Mm -hmm. was like Nesson, like there were a bunch of different big markets that would show their Mm -hmm. monthly house show on cable. Mm -hmm. And so they'd be going to the building once a month 
it would be free for anybody who had basic cable TV mm-hmm. and they were still selling it out every month. Yes. And that's what I think is craziest is that you didn't have to go to the garden to see the MSG show. You could stay home and watch it on your couch or in your bed. Mm-hmm. And they were still getting people to go into the city, pay the money and, and do it every four weeks. And, and, and I think that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully the business will get back to a point where it can fire on every cylinder like that. Uh, I don't know that you can run the same town every month. So, but, but yeah, that was pretty strong business. I think a lot of it has to do with um, actually Eric Bischoff talks about this a lot on his podcast. Wrestling is the only type of entertainment where the people that you see, the people that you fall in love with your heroes, they come to your town. Like if Mm. you like movies, like your favorite actor isn't coming to your town at any time soon, (laughs) especially if you live in like God knows where Idaho, but once every couple months, your favorite wrestler is going to be 300 feet away in a ring. And that's, I think was the draw for it. Yeah, so true. Yeah. So I, I think, and I, you know, I hope, I don't know after all this, if house shows are going to come back, but I, you know, the live events, I feel like those will be big, at least in the first couple months, yeah. just for people to get out. So, yeah. but let's go back. So let's transition from you as a kid to then you, uh, I read online, you went to Cornell for a yeah. little bit and then for three did, years. Yeah. And then you decided, uh, nope, you wanted to be a wrestler. Yep. How'd that go over? I, I knew I knew about the wrestling end of it before I went to Cornell even. Okay. Um, so it was it was like the, I'm, I'm doing the Indies and I'm at Cornell and I wouldn't have left the Cornell for the Indies. Um, you know, um, nothing against the Indies, but uh, mm-hmm. when it was ECW and there was TV and touring involved mm-hmm. and also taking a bet on yourself that was a bet on the company. Uh, where I thought that it did have a chance of becoming a top player and it did become a chance for me of something that I could make a living at. Mm. And once I saw that I could make a living at pro wrestling, I said to myself, well, you know, I'm here at Cornell, their communication department isn't all that great. Uh, But across town at Ithaca College, there's the number three TV radio department in the country and I'm taking classes there, and I'm already the sports director at the radio station in Ithaca, the NBC News Radio. I'm working for um, Cornell Sports Network production. I'm the PA announcer for seven or eight different Cornell teams, and now I'm doing all that so that I can get a job in wrestling or get a job at ESPN or something like that, and now a job in wrestling avails itself um around the end of my third year there and it was really you know again you had to it was me betting on myself and betting on the company and um I've always been the kind of person that would rather regret what I do Mm. than regret not doing it and then have to wonder Mm -hmm. so uh so yeah I cut the cord at Cornell and uh and I left hoping that maybe um, you know, they, they had told me that, you know, the, the door wasn't necessarily closed forever, but it was kind of a mutual decision where they wanted me to take some time off and I didn't quite feel the need to be there. And, uh, and we parted amicably. So was the fallback like sports talk? Yeah, I think the fallback would have been uh, sports talk, uh, some sort of TV like news, mm-hmm. um, sports admin, sports marketing, um, sports business. Um, 
maybe sports law, but that would have required more years at school. And I just, I was always good at school. I always felt that school was unpaid work. And, um, you know, I, it's good to be self-aware. There are a lot of traits that I have. Mm-hmm. I think I'm a good person that's good in many ways at many things. Uh, work ethic and discipline are probably not in the top five. <laughs> and I'm aware of that. And I'm a stronger person for being aware of who I am and how I am. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I know that I'd rather work to better myself at the things that I'm good at mm-hmm. than try to become mediocre at the things that I'm not as good at. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know that going three more years to law school would have been in the cards. But uh, but something along those lines uh, was probably the plan B. It, it's funny. You touched on something there that I've heard many different times in like different motivational speeches and like uh, self-help books that sometimes people spend so much time trying to get better at the things that they're not good at, that they don't spend the time becoming great at the things they are good at. And I think you learned that early. Like, why am I going to beat my head against the wall to try and do these two things when I'm good at really good at these things. Let me get better at them. Wrestling school. Yeah. I found a wrestling school. I found a wrestling gym in the city when I was 16. I knew I needed to, and I also wanted to minus the pain, Mm -hmm. take at least one wrestling class. And I took at least one wrestling class, maybe two. And I learned the fundamentals of taking a back bump Mm -hmm. and running the ropes. Okay. And I was sore from the back bumps. And I was even more sore and got welts from the ropes. And I knew that I wasn't an athlete in this lifetime ever going to be. Mm. And I said to myself, this is great Mm. because now when I'm a color commentator, if I'm ever a color commentator, I can talk about, oh, you think you can execute the maneuver that you just saw? I'll have you know that you wouldn't even be able to run the ropes and take a back and I knew that I could use that in my toolbox. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, my bread wasn't buttered to be a wrestler. And I knew that. But like you say, you know, I, I, I did it a little mm-hmm. so that I could know that it wasn't for me and why and how it wasn't for me so that I could use that. Well, the taking the bumps kind of came in handy later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which we'll get into that. Touché. So, so you, uh, you get hired on by ECW. What was the original role? Timekeeper, timekeeper, and backup ring announcer. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't. They were just starting to bring in Lucha guys. Okay. They hadn't brought in Damien yet. Mm-hmm. So there was, I think, no reason for them to have known that I spoke Japanese, mm-hmm. and no reason for them to have known that I spoke Spanish. Mm-hmm. So um, timekeeper and and a second ring announcer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, um, foreign language ring announcer, uh, well, primary ring announcer, mm-hmm. uh, foreign language ring announcer, heel ring announcer, mm-hmm. manager, and then color commentator and co-host at TNN. What, what, when did it go, at what point uh, did it go uh, ring announcer to heel ring announcer? When our primary ring announcer came back, Paul was big into that. Paul, if you earned your spot, Mm-hmm. And if you were valuable and you were a talent and an asset, mm-hmm. Paul wouldn't just cut you loose because what you were doing didn't fit at the moment or anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when Bob Ortiz came back from a hiatus, he was the full-time ring announcer at the arena and everywhere again. And, uh, and I got, um, as per Paul, moved sideways. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, thankfully for me, every time I moved sideways, I performed well enough that it was a step up, mm-hmm. which I'm grateful about. I, I read online somewhere that um, it, uh, part of it too, uh, you were urged by Shane Douglas to kind of go a little bit heelish and start making fun of some of the baby faces. Were you open to that in the beginning? Yeah. Oh yeah. Was it, I mean, was it Shane that said it? Um, not to me. Okay. Uh, I'm not gonna say that it's, that there's no validity. Okay. I, I don't know if I've heard that, mm. but I wouldn't be surprised. Okay. Um, and he became, they bounced me around different heels, mm-hmm. but I kind of stabilized with him mm-hmm. and was with him, I think, for longer than some of the other acts that I was only with for a week or two. Mm-hmm. So he may have spoken to Paul and um, requested me mm-hmm. to be with, I, I'm not sure. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if that is how it went down mm-hmm. because a lot of the guys, especially those um, either with ECW tenure for a while or guys who'd been in the business a bit, um, a lot of guys were chipping in with creative mm-hmm. and it was really a group effort uh, and it was really kind of an open uh, forum when it came to creative mm-hmm. and Paul listened to a lot of the guys. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's possible. Do you think that helped uh, when you're coming out of school and you're a young kid that you immerse yourself in a collaborative effort. Whereas if you somehow found a way to connect to a WCW or a WWE, those were very much corporate structures and it might, you might've been, you know, kind of disenfranchised with it after a while. Whereas with ECW, it was like, everybody does this, this person does seven different things. Like how did that play into it? Um, I liked, you know, ECW was perfect in the sense that it was independent, Mm -hmm. but it was big. Mm -hmm. Um, There wasn't a lot of money behind it, but it was a draw. It was, it had this kind of cult following. It was, it, it was, it was just the popularity, the halo effect that it had. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, that's what made it, you know, and like you say, it wasn't corporate and it wasn't structured at all in any way. Mm. Um, there was no pyro and there was no lights and, you know, we stole all the bootleg music <laughs> and, um, but that's what made it, you know? And uh, when I first went and did TNA, which I think was a lot more comparable production wise, I, I had never done WCW So I'm not the person to make this comparison. So I'll make it anyway. (laughs) From what I hear um, some other people say, it was very much a WCW-like in some ways project. Mm -hmm. And and it was, you know, it was scripted more for sure. It was scripted at all for sure. Um, You know, you get stuff with bullet points, you get little scripts, uh, you you get a lot of people, you know, kind of... um, answering to each other above you and and everything like that. And it was, I'm not adverse to that. I mean, I think, you know, great productions require great production. You know, there's a reason WWE has a department called magic, you know, and anybody who wants to poo poo it is a hypocrite because a lot of the things that they'll then tell you that they enjoy most that have happened on their TV Mm -hmm. has happened with the help of magic or with the production truck. So 
Um, but I, you know, I don't know if I would, I mean, I didn't wind up clicking with TNA. Um, with WWE, I did the ECW one night stand 05 pay-per-view, but wasn't brought back for the second one or for the series. Um, and a lot of the time as talent, you're kind of not told why and, and if there's reasoning behind it. Mm. Um, but I didn't click or acclimate as well uh, as I did within ECW where, uh, you know, like you say, it's just that kind of, um, you know, just the little engine that could kind of everybody just helps it chug along and, and a real family vibe. You know, we had so many guys come through who would have been to WCW, WWF, or both. And they would say, nothing's like this. You know, I'm happy to come to work. Uh, locker room morale is good. And they'd say things that you would never, you know, who would ever w- expect that in more than half of companies that locker room morale is bad? Like, mm-hmm. why should that be a regular thing? Mm-hmm. But we would have guys tell us that, you know, for them in their experience, you know, locker room morale wasn't ever really great until they came to us. So I don't know, you know, I, I feel blessed that again, without wrestling, without being a guy that's in there doing the physical magic, except for like you say, taking bumps and, and that kind of thing, being on defense and, and a bit of a crash test dummy, without that, um, just talking and acting and writing and thinking, I was able to become a, a big enough fish in that pond that I stayed until the end and didn't leave. How did the uh, connection with the Dudleys come about? They they were the last act that I was bounced to. I was bounced to um, Devon and Axel, I think, maybe from Shane. Mm. And um, and then Devon turned on Axel. Like, I mean, there was the whole, uh, there were a bunch of turns, um, twists and turns. Uh, I think Dudleys went for, at least three years, maybe if you count the early Dudley stuff, maybe it went for more like four years. I, I can't um, I can't count right mm-hmm. now, but um, it, we got a lot out of the Dudleys and um, how, I, I don't know, I just, I went to Devon and Axel and then I was put with the Dudleys. I don't know how long term the booking was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if it was known for the months before Barely Legal that they wanted the Dudleys in that spot with me, you know, I, I don't know. Sometimes it seemed like stuff was being booked day to day or week to week, but you never know whether certain arcs were, you know, months out. Mm-hmm. Um, I was so young. Mm-hmm. I started in ECW three days after my 20th birthday. So my whole run there was from me being 20 to me being 25. Mm-hmm. So um, I wasn't privy to, I, I made suggestions. Mm-hmm. Some of them were taken. Uh, and, and when it came to my stuff, I wrote 99% of my stuff, but, um, but I wasn't privy a lot of the time to some of the booking decisions and some of the office stuff. So, you know, I don't know, but I, I got put with the Dudleys and it clicked and, uh, and we ran together forever. So set the scene for me, because now that I think about, it, I put your age into perspective, so you are 21, 22 years old you're with the Dudleys who already themselves are heat magnets. You're getting heat in front of a usually always hostile Philadelphia crowd. Love them to death, but like they just want to punch somebody out. And you're just getting rained down with booze 
and like you think they want to murder you how does that feel to a 21 year old joel gertner um great great it felt like <laughs> <laughs> it, it felt like everything uh it felt like everything was firing on all cylinders and like <laughs> like like the plan to leave cornell yeah i, I don't know man i it, it, tough to answer i mean i i kind of felt like i was um at the top of the world even though you know to everybody you know to the outsider looking in even when you're in ecw you're not yet at the top of the world you know maybe you could get to wwf or wcw um wasn't a concern for me i i wanted to keep moving sideways mm -hmm. and i wanted to keep moving up and i wanted to um i wanted to get as high up the ladder within ecw as i could and from you know that kept happening you know a, a lot of guys unfortunately um a lot feel like they got carrots dangled in front of them and uh and some of the things that they were promised didn't come through and didn't happen for me i just uh things worked out you know people a lot of the time say could you have left why did you stay um i never thought about leaving because but I, I had, I had a conversation with WWF, um, and then later on, towards the end, as ECW was closing, um, there were like, uh, I don't even want to say there were feelers with WCW. It was nothing official. But um, with WWF, I spoke with an agent and mm -hmm. uh, and and had uh, what seemed like an offer. Um, maybe that was me just testing the waters so that I could. It was right before. I signed an ECW contract and maybe that was a way of me kind of knowing my worth and, and just, you know, doing some due diligence, but I, I didn't jump on it. I, I didn't make it happen. And I, I never wanted to leave because I never wanted to leave because I, I just, um, it just always felt right to be an ECW. And, and I don't know whether that was me wanting to be a bigger fish in a smaller pond or have more creative control or um, the schedule, um, which we got to four days a week. Eventually, uh, we were doing like triple shots, uh, alternating with quadruple shots. So we were doing, I think, fourteen days a month, some months. But um, but it was still a good schedule. A lot of stuff was local. Uh, when I was with TNN, sometimes I was only working once a week doing production, mm -hmm. and uh, and it wasn't very far from where I was living. So uh, so your weekly check sometimes is just for you know one day on and six days off. So um. I don't know, man. I, and then I'm trading stock during the week. And so I, I don't know. Um, I don't even remember what the question was. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, sorry about that. But um, so let me, let me kind of transition real quick to uh, you, the feelers from possibly feelers from WWE. Um, just as a outside fan who grew up watching at that time, like that was like the height of my fandom. Sometimes it felt like, and this might not have been your situation, but a lot of the situations, especially with the uh, relationship with WWE and ECW, sometimes it felt like the WWE took ECW guys not to have them, but more just so ECW didn't have them. Did you sometimes feel that way? It's possible. I, um, I think our partnership with WWE, such as it was, mm. 
um, which was kind of one-sided and I think benefited them more than it benefited us. Absolutely. We got, you know, and we got people to kind of help train. We were kind of like a performance center and we were kind of like developmental and we got guys that either needed a break from WWE or needed to test out a new gimmick or whatever. Mm. So we would get a flash funk and we would get an Al Snow and we would get, um, we'd also get um, Brockus mm. and, um, but I think more so WCW would park guys. WCW would take guys and do next to nothing with them. Just mm. sit on them. Mm -hmm. uh, they would take guys like Sabu and Sandman and Mikey Whipwreck. And I guess they created a hardcore division and stuff like that. But I don't know. But, but I mean, you could be onto something, though. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, WWE, definitely, like I say, I think the partnership was more beneficial to them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So um, you're in the, you're, you're with the Dudleys, you're at the height of the popularity and then they sign with WWE. Like, how do you feel? Are you deflated? Are you what? I mean, I'm, obviously you're happy for them because they're your friends, but are you like, okay, but what happens to Joel Gertner? They pulled me aside and I'm trying to, the, the timeline of 99 is so tricky mm -hmm. because I was being told along the way that we were getting a deal and we got the TNN deal and it started in August. And I was being told a few months before that, that we'd get the deal. And, and so I can be the color commentator and this and that. And, and that's right around the time that the Dudleys are leaving mm -hmm. um, in mid to late, I think around there, 99 and when they were going to leave and they had maybe already signed and they were working their way out or whatever, they pulled me aside when they knew that I had a contract on the table and that I was about to sign. And, and it would be tough for me to remember everything exactly that they said. Mm -hmm. The end result of it was me not going there with them. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there could have been a different result. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I what I most remember is them asking me if I was really sure that I wanted to sign. And I don't know why they would imply that other than that there might be greener grass to. Mm -hmm. So I, it, it was just they had that going on that they were going to leave and that they WWE wanted them mm -hmm. and they were going there. And I was on my journey of taking, you know, the next step up mm -hmm. being a contract player for the first time. And it, it was just the timing of it all. Um, I eventually, I think on May 1st, I signed my deal. Mm -hmm. And by August we were on TNN. Do you think maybe they saw kind of the writing on the wall with where things were going and were maybe kind of hoping they, they were going to a new federation. They couldn't say, we'll bring you with us, but I'm sure they thought if we're there for a little while and we say, Hey, this guy worked with us in ECW, just, just because of where they saw the company going, you know, paychecks bouncing, things not going great. Maybe they're trying to protect you in a way or like give you hope you know, for a future? Maybe. I mean, <laughs> I, um, it, could, it could have been anything, you know. I mean, when I talked before about talking to an agent mm -hmm. uh, and I, you know, it never, I never really need to ever go into the details. So this might be the first time I'm, this might be an exclusive for you, but mm -hmm. 
the agent that I talked to was Terry Taylor. And the thing that he had put in front of me as his suggestion creatively, we talked money and then we talked creative and creatively, he said, maybe put me with public enemy who they were thinking about bringing in. Okay. Um, looked at the one way. Um, if they see my work with the Dudleys and ECW like it and like me for public enemy, mm. But hell, they must have loved me with the Dudleys, right? <laughs> yeah, it's the exactly. one way to look at it. Yeah. And then the other way of looking at it is, what if I would have come in with Public Enemy? They did one or two shots. They were gone. Maybe one shot on TV. They mm. were gone. Mm. Would I have been kept? Right. Or would I have been tainted? But, you know, would I have just been collateral damage? Mm. So, I don't know. Yeah. Mysteries, mysteries. Yeah. So, you stick around. You're the color, color commentator on... TNN. Um, did you like that better than announcing? Um, hmm, I, I love wrestling. I, I love wrestling. I mean, it didn't matter to me. I love ring announcing mm -hmm. uh, when the time was right to do color commentary and co-host. I loved that managing. Um, I, I, you know, even, you know, we were talking about before what I watched growing up and who I loved growing up was, all the heel managers and guys like Piper and Ventura, the cut promos, mm -hmm. uh, and Howard Finkel. Mm -hmm. So I loved being a ring announcer, loved being a manager. A lot of the managers made the best color commentators, loved being a color commentator, um, loved it all. Okay, so there really wouldn't have been anything that you wouldn't have done for, at you know, if they asked you to do, like you said, you just wanted to move sideways. So you yeah. would have done anything. Um, uh, let's talk about the last days when you know it's over. Like, how you f obviously you're feeling terrible, but like, was there a glimmer of hope? Like, maybe because there were other federations around that you could have moved on to. Like, how did you feel? Um, stayed till the end. Uh, talked to Paul on the phone and said, um, please let me know anything I need to know that would put reason in my mind not to ever consider in any way, shape or form asking you for a release. Mm. And he couldn't do it at the mm. time. He, uh, he said, you know, if, if you've got, you know, if there are feelers out and there's interest and, uh, you know, I mean, this was way at the end. This was after the last pay-per-view. Mm -hmm. This was, I'm talking about right before, you know, we saw him turn up on WrestleMania. This is probably, if I had to guess the month, maybe I'd say this isn't, I'm not talking about January of 01. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about more like March of 01. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that was at a time where, you know, for the January pay-per-view, they had put up a, a billboard. Uh, they put up a graphic out of the production truck that said that our next pay-per-view was going to be Living Dangerously 2001. And, uh, and it never happened. And this was at a time where that show had already been canceled and everybody knew there was going to be no Living Dangerously. Like really, really all the ink was on the wall. Mm -hmm. and, um, and he was honest enough to say, you know, I, I can't do that for you. I can't really um, tell you not to ask for a release. Um, so, so I asked for one and I got one. Um, and I was probably one of the one of the last people there before getting let go. I mean, I think a lot of other people um, might have asked for their release before that. Mm. Uh, let's go back to the uh, the good stuff. Um, the Philly crowd it was nuts. 
Like, do you remember like any, did you ever have a feeling? Well, okay. Actually, this is what I wanted to ask before. So when you're the heel, when you're the heel commentator, well, I'm sorry, when you're the heel announcer, heel commentator, you used to do the, the limericks. You would like say all the funny off the wall shit. Uh, you would make fun of other guys. You often made fun of other guys as a commentator. Did anyone like, did it get you actual heat with anybody? No. They're all okay. No, with every, it? Yeah. Everybody took it in stride and knew, knew what it was all about. Um, I probably had heat with some people for getting so much time because mm-hmm. it got to certain points where what used to be a one minute intro was a five minute intro. Mm-hmm. Um, there are probably people who were getting no TV time mm-hmm. who were wondering why I was getting five times as much as I used to. Mm-hmm. But um, no, no real heat. I, I always used to equate it to, I'm a huge Springsteen fan. I used to equate it to like when Springsteen introduces the band. I mean, you had a lot of guys introduced. Like, there was like twenty of you, Dudley. There's twenty of the Dudleys walking yeah. around. You know, Dudleys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you ever have a moment where you kind of just blanked, like you knew what you yes. wanted to say? <laughs> Walk me yes. through that. Yes. <laughs> um, I tried to make sure even the stuff that I wrote half an hour before I said it live, mm-hmm. I tried to make sure that I had it memorized. Mm-hmm. Um, there may have been one, you know, wild hair issue where um, where I kind of dropped the ball and had to. Uh, freestyle and and where I might have dropped some verbiage more so than that though in Buffalo one night I go out there and I introduce sign guy and I introduce Devon and now it's time to introduce Bubba and I've been out there for a couple minutes with them already and Bubba looks at me and he's like where's your neck brace and I had forgotten to put my bow tie and neck brace on which at the time was contrary to character. You know, it, was, right. it wasn't, there was no storyline reason why I'd been out of it. I had just yeah. literally forgot to put it on. Yeah. And he asked me, where's your neck brace? And as I go from there and start introducing him, I lose my voice. Like you can tell that I'm, and, and by the end of the introduction, my voice, you know, sometimes wasn't as strong as it wasn't like, but to actually completely by the end of introducing him, not have my voice, uh, I think was definitely a function of psychologically just coming to terms with being a perfectionist. And every other time for the previous two years, I'm wearing the bow tie and neck brace. And this time I had forgotten to. So were you able to finish it, the promo? I, I ran out of steam. By the time I was done introducing him, I had no voice. And uh, I just stayed at ringside and, and, and did the physical aspect and managed them and cornered them. And, and that was it. But uh, yeah, not not pleasant. I used to, uh, some nights I'd wear it all night. Mm-hmm. I was so used to wearing it three nights a week mm-hmm. that for hours at a time, that there were nights, uh, there was... At one point in 97, I'm working a hotel gig overnights, like third shift, four or five days a week. And the other two or three days a week, I'm doing ECW. So I think that calendar year 97, between the two jobs, I worked 362 days. I was off three days. So we're at a Boston show, Boston area, on a Friday night. We were probably like seventh match. And during like the second match, I gear up and I put my neck brace on and I put the bow tie around it nice and tight. And I'm sitting there and I'm not going to mind sitting there for five matches because I never did with the bow tie and neck brace on. And all of a sudden, because I've been working all week at the hotel, uh, I take like a little bit of a nap. Like I, I kind of, you know, fall asleep. 
And then I wake up, you know, just whatever, a moment or two later, and I realize I just fell asleep with the damn bow tie and neck brace on. So. <laughs> it, it, I wanted to bring that up, too. I recently read uh, Bobby the Brain Heenan's biography, and he actually had legit neck problems. But before that happened, he used to wear the neck brace as, you know, part of the, his gimmick. And he said that he believes that that actually caused neck problems from wearing that neck brace. Yeah. Did you have any like uncomfortableness or do you have any like fallout from that? Not, I mean, you know, I, I weigh a little bit more than I should. I'm not sure if you can tell, but I'm well, you're 153, on the right? Side. So I've got, so back <laughs> here, I've got like a little bit of kind of, you know, like, um, you know, just like kind of a, a California brown bear mite or whatever. <laughs> like I've got like a little bit of kind of, you know, maybe like, I don't know what the butcher would call it, like back fat or whatever, like upper back fat. But like, is that, you know, more, is it more like a hump because of my posture, because I wore a neck brace 12 to 16 hours a week in the 90s? Mm. I don't know. You know, yes, no, maybe so. I mean, who's to tell? But, um, but I mean, I think, um, I think definitely the juice was worth the squeeze because, you know, wearing that neck brace and bow tie, uh, created a gimmick and it created, you know, it, it left a mark and it created a career. I, you know, I went to a convention. This is another time I forgot it. I went to a convention five or 10 years ago, maybe five years ago, um, the big event in New York City at one of the hotels in Queens. And I'm paired up with Bam Margera's dad. Mm. And I'm sitting at the table with Bam Margera's dad. And I had forgotten the neck brace and bow tie somehow at home. So I got the eight by tens on the table, but I'm sitting there without the bow tie and neck brace. Mm -hmm. Man, I don't know if rent on the table came back. I mean, <laughs> honestly, like no, but like people were looking at me. I might as well have just been the guy sitting next to Ben Margera's dad. Like I might as well have not woke up that morning and got out of bed, not having that bow tie and neck brace. Because even if people do recognize me, if they're gonna want a picture with me wearing it, uh -huh. If I don't have it there, that kind of, you know what I mean? And it's, conventions are so competitive mm -hmm. that like, so long story short, um, having that bow tie and that neck brace um, has always been a blessing. You know, I, I got it from taking total elimination mm -hmm. and just never took it off. And uh, well, took it off once. Mm -hmm. And then an hour and a half later on the same show, the Dudleys gave me 3D as they were leaving for WWF. Mm -hmm. And I wound up back in it. Um, but thankfully, you know, and now I'll be on Twitter or wherever and people will be like, Hey, how's your neck? Mm -hmm. Hey, you still wearing a neck brace? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's something to talk about. So was it your idea to keep on the neck brace for good? Get to right to make it part of After your you gear took it. And yeah. To patternize it and color it and yeah. always have it getting fancier and fancier. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. To kind of wear just the jacket with no shirt, just chest uh -huh. hair. Mm -hmm. and a neck brace and a bow tie and keep the bow tie and put it over the neck brace. I mean, yeah, it was a work in progress and it was kind of always developing um, week to week episodic, but, um, but, but yeah, that was, that was, um, I think, I think, yeah, I certainly wasn't adverse to it. Mm -hmm. um, the reason the shirt got lost, I know, was a suggestion that I made um, in Reading PA. We were working this silo and um, it was, 95 degrees outside and it was probably 125 degrees inside and i remembered like chris farley from mm -hmm. the chippendale sketch with patrick swayze mm -hmm. and i went over to i think todd gordon and i said and i was a heel um announcer 
at the mm-hmm. time, a heel ring announcer. I wasn't with the Dudleys yet, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Maybe Devon and Axel, I don't remember. And I said, you think it would be heat, good heat with the fans, if I don't wear a shirt mm-hmm. that eliminates one layer? I was completely thinking about myself because it was scorching hot in the building. <laughs> I eliminate the shirt, but I keep the jacket. Mm-hmm. And I keep the bow tie, but the bow tie is not on with the shirt. It's just the bow tie and the jacket because I'm fat and it's hot. And he was like, try it. That sounds like heat. So we did. And then when the neck brace came along, mm-hmm. of course, what's an idiot like me going to do if he's got to wear a neck brace? He's going to keep the bow tie and he's going to wear it over the neck brace. Mm-hmm. Does, does Joel Gertner, the character, work as a baby face? Quintessential stud muffin? Yeah. Quintessential <laughs> stud muffin works best probably as a tweener okay as a tweener as maybe a jesse ventura type Mm -hmm. with a sharp tongue and no filter Mm -hmm. who maybe roots for some heels and some baby faces and is some sort of shade of gray Mm -hmm. depending on what individualistic mood He's in that day. He works mm-hmm. that way, which was the way I was with Joey Styles on TNN towards the end. Mm-hmm. As a as a complete babyface is tough. They put me with Christian York and Joey Matthews as a tweener. I think it started to work, but that was right at the end and there was no time to develop it. Um, babyface is tough. There was a time where the limericks were getting over people were reaching over in the front row of the guardrail to high five me. Mm-hmm. I may have even high fived somebody back once mm-hmm. and I got to the back and Paul pulled me aside and he said, you are worth a million dollars to me mm-hmm. as a heel. Mm-hmm. As a baby face you are worthless and you are replaceable because at the time i was with the dudleys and the job was getting eat so uh so would i have ever in any form worked as a baby face maybe but i think i'd like me better as a tweener do you watch any of the current product yeah all of it all as much as i can yeah still watch wrestling all the time yeah do you feel like, and I've heard this discussed on other podcasts, do you feel like guys are now afraid to get legitimate heat? I don't know if most people are so much afraid to get heat. It's harder to get heat. Just because, I don't know whether it's, the generation, the time, the chronology of it all. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether it's social media and its involvement. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether it's harder to shock because you can say shit at eight o'clock now on basic cable. I don't know whether even though you can say shit at eight o'clock on basic cable, there's a lot more political correctness, right? Like, Mm -hmm. are people afraid to get heat now? I don't know. But All in the Family was on TV 45 years ago, and All in the Family wouldn't be on TV today. Mm -hmm. So um, is it a function of people being scared to get heat? Um, No, 
it is harder. It, it's more like shepherding cats to know what the optimal kind of heat is to get and then procure it, if that makes any kind of sense. No, it, it does. Um, yeah, I, I do agree with that. I feel like there's really nothing that a person could do now. I mean, I, I'm talking in wrestling terms. There's obviously things people can do, regular people. Like I could go right now and do something awful on Twitter and I'd get a ton of, but I'm saying like as the character, I feel like, I feel like also too, especially with the bigger federations, like it, there's so many blurred lines now, like this guy's on TV and he's trying to be hated but then two minutes later on their same television show, you'll see that guy like meeting a make a wish kid. And you're like, what am I supposed to believe? <laughs> Where, it's tough. Yeah, like it's I want to hate it's Roman like, Reigns, but Roman, I was just about to say, you know, you're <laughs> yeah. in my head, you know, Roman Reigns is getting great heat, right? With yeah. the dysfunctional family stuff. Right. Roman Reigns is great at getting heat. Yeah. But Number one, he's already done I'm a little teapot with his daughter. <laughs> and number two, you're going to show him doing good things for his community and doing stuff like Make-A-Wish. Yeah. So at that point, am, am I going to, you know, up against WWE's production, their money, their machine, up against Roman Reigns, his personal experiences and, and his tenure and everything he's learned and done and his legacy and his family. Am I going to say that Eddie Kingston is a better heel than Roman Reigns today? Uh, you know, I could say it, and it's arguable. To some people, it's not arguable at all. Roman Reigns is the winner. To some people, there's no debate. Eddie Kingston is the winner. I know I love watching Roman Reigns, but like you say, you, it, it's part of a show. You suspend disbelief, and then 10 minutes later, you see him being nice. Whereas not to say AEW wouldn't do it, because they've got a lot going on. They're a corporate structure. They do a lot for their community. And for all I know, they'll go ahead and, and by next week, it won't make sense that I'm saying this, but if Eddie Kingston for now is the kind of guy that stepped away from that and he's a fresher face as a heel, some of the stuff that he does is not to say it's more believable, but you see what I'm getting at? Like, yes. it's, it's a testament to what you said. Like, it's tough to get and keep the same kind of heat that guys would get in the past mm -hmm. because there's so much going on where even as a heel, if you're a top enough guy and, and, and you want to be a face of the company, you can't be a heel all the time. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you one guy who is, and he's an absolute jerk off. It's MJF. Yeah. He keeps the gimmick all the time, <laughs> conventions and everything, which is a blast, which is fun. You know, he'll yeah. sell, you know, Oh, MJF's going to show up and he's going to sell autographs. And then he gets to his table He's selling autographs for $500 a piece. Like, I love that. Yeah. He was on the show. He was a jerk to me for an hour. <laughs> That's tremendous. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I can say he's a jerk because I have the video proof of it happening. So That's tremendous. <laughs> before, before I let you go, where can people find Joel Gertner now? Oh, man. Um, my YouTube channel just passed 1,000 subscribers. It's relatively new. Uh, yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, so hit that up. It's just... Joel Gertner, find mm. that on YouTube. Um, not a lot of live going on, right? COVID and everything else. Um, mm. I do um, video messages on Cameo. Cameo. And on CelebVM. Mm. Um, so you can find me Cameo slash Joel Gertner, CelebVM slash Joel Gertner. Um, I've got t-shirts for sale on Pro Wrestling Tees. 
uh, on the web, on social media. You can find me on Twitter at StudMuffinSays mm-hmm. and Instagram at Quintessential StudMuffin. I've got a podcast called The 69-Minute Eargasm. I've got another one starting up called Extreme Championship Wednesday. And I've got one with Blue Meanie and Josh Chernoff. Uh, we're going to do one right around January 1st. Uh, and we're going to see what the reception is for that. But it seems really strong now. So that's going to be on ad-free shows. And hopefully that's weekly, monthly, you know, what, whatever the demand is, you know, it'll be. Um, but that's going to be... Um, uh, that was extreme is mm-hmm. going to be the name of that one. So that was extreme 69 minute eargasm and soon to be extreme championship Wednesday are the podcast, the YouTube channel. Uh, please hit me up on Instagram and on Twitter. I'm very, very interactive on it. Ask my wife. She hates it. I'm on the phone all day. Um, so, uh, now she's okay. With that. <laughs> That's great. I'll be sure to link out to all that stuff. And Joel, thanks a lot for your time, man. Thank you, boss. I appreciate it.